Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Welcome to episode five of Victor's Children. There are two segments in this episode. In the first, I'm presenting an interview that I did with Harsha Walia, longtime migrant justice organizer, about some themes connected to her new book, Border and Rule. I think this is especially relevant coming up to Canada Day and the 4th of July in the US. After that, I'm going to be presenting a discussion with two other members of the editorial board of a new publication of which I'm also an editor, Midnight Sun. I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm joined today from Vancouver by Harsha Walia. Uh, Harsha is a longtime migrant justice uh, and uh, organizer and also active in many other fields the author of Undoing Border Imperialism, and most recently, Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism. Thanks for joining us, Harsha. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just jump right in. Uh, in. In Border and Rule, you have a chapter, the book ends with a chapter on refusing reactionary nationalisms. Can you explain to people listening to Victor's Children why you think we should refuse Canadian nationalism? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, um there's many reasons, but perhaps I'll start with uh, the most obvious one, which is that you know Canadian nationalism is really rooted in obscuring and erasing Indigenous sovereignty um, and the, the whole idea of Canadian nationalism and, of course, the Canadian nation state itself uh, is built on the violent dispossession of Indigenous jurisdiction, lands, legal orders, um, and political systems. And so I think it's really important uh, to not fall into the trap of Canadian nationalism that often takes the form of, oh, at least we're better than the U.S., um, because it erases these foundational violences like settler colonialism, uh, like Canada's uh, deep history, deep and ongoing history of anti-Black violence and specifically enslavement. Um, as many Black organizers and scholars have pointed out, the narrative and the myth of Canada as the safe haven and the Underground Railroad um, really Canada's complicity in enslavement. Um, and uh, also the, the narrative, um, the third thing that we can think about is the ways in which Canadian nationalism, specifically its kind of multiculturalism form, um, erases ongoing systemic racism and anti-migrant exclusion. And so I think it's really important for those reasons and, and many more to not get stuck in the trap of Canadian nationalism that is intended to, to placate um, any criticisms that's ended that's intended to be a kind of form of jingoism um, and a celebrate, you know, a celebration of, of Canada at the expense of really investigating, unearthing, and dismantling uh, forms of oppression. If if we reject the idea that we think about ourselves as members of nations, how should people who are committed to radical change think about our place in the world? Um, yeah, I mean, I think what's really important, you know, I don't think there's a one size kind of 
fits all around how we make sense of our place in the world. People have different identities, different connections to place, have different histories, different attachments. Um, so I don't want to suggest that there's, you know, one kind of thing that replaces nationalism, right? It really is about uh, building different senses of our place in the world. But I think one uh, ethical orientation that I think we should always have in mind is internationalism, right? Which is what is our place in the world? What is the role of Canada um, in the world? How are we bound up in, in imperialism around the world? And certainly one of the ways in which um, we don't often see ourselves implicated, not only in global, but also uh, not only in local, but also global violences, is that again, we tend to compare ourselves to the US, right? Without um, really seeing the realities of Canada being sometimes a junior partner and sometimes a leading partner. Uh, in imperialist interventions, um, Canada has, you know, spearheaded the responsibility to protect doctrine, as as Anthony Fenton lays out um, so well in his work. Um, and you know that kind of new form of humanitarian imperialism that we see in in Libya and Haiti and elsewhere in Somalia has really been pioneered and championed by Canada. And so I think you know we have to think of ourselves um, locally and globally simultaneously. It means we have to think of ourselves. Uh, as very much located within settler colonialism, within forms of state violence, within imperialism, within global circuits of capital production. And I know that all sounds, um, you know, like a whole bunch of words, but I think there is no way, there's no one way to think of ourselves in the context of place that doesn't contend uh, with structures of violence. Thanks. So I'd like to now bring up uh, the Conservative Party, and a somewhat different tack that they have been taking over the last year. So last September, Aaron O'Toole released a Labor Day video uh, and uh, tweeted, you know, do you think it's time for ec economic policy that puts Canadian workers first? Uh, and in this, he talked about job losses in manufacturing, forestry, and energy. He referred to people, in his words, living on the brink, living in quiet desperation. He criticized governments for bad free trade deals, as well as for what he called corporate. Uh, he criticized what he called corporate and financial power brokers, who serve shareholders and seek out cheap labor in China. Uh, he talked about the idea of a so-called Canada-first economic strategy that, in his words, doesn't cater to elites and special interests, but again, in his words, fights for working Canadians. And he even used the word solidarity in this. So I think this is a change of tactics for the federal conservatives. Although we have seen this kind of thing from Trump and other far-right politicians. And in your book, Border and Rule, you refer to this kind of right-wing nationalist appeal to workers as a prescription for, and I'll quote you here, a messianic rescue from the upheavals of neoliberalism. So can you share some thoughts about what you think O'Toole and other conservatives are trying to do now that they're making this kind of appeal to, to workers using language that they're not uh, traditionally familiar with? Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, if we look at it globally, there's uh, two two particular trends. There's many more, but I think two particular trends that um, are worrying and that really weaponize uh, the language of of the left and of struggles. And you know, one is, as you point out, the kind of appropriation of language of protecting workers, protecting jobs, um, and the second is, you know, increasingly we're seeing the appropriation of of climate climate change rhetoric and language um, by the right, you know, where um, we're increasingly seeing the right using 
language around uh, needing to save the earth, needing to protect the planet, um, really in order to put forward an agenda of, of eco-apartheid, right, as another way of militarizing the border and securing the border. And when the right uses the, the rhetoric of protecting our jobs, protecting Canadian workers, it has the same impact of essentially militarizing and securing the border. Um, because by, by focusing on uh, Canadian workers and on Canadian jobs, it's an attempt to cleave uh, and divide the international working class, to divide workers from each other, um, and also to further affix race to the nation state, right? By really um, coding Canadian workers as white workers, as if though migrant workers um, are not also essentially Canadian workers, right? Like migrant workers work in Canada. Um, they may not have legal citizenship, but that is deliberate, but they are effectively working in the Canadian, in the nation state, working alongside Canadians. Um, but, you know, we see that language like migrant workers and the entire program of migrant work really is a euphemism for third world workers and a way, again, to maintain the division and to lower uh, the wage floor for all workers. And so I think this, this turn um, by conservatives in Canada really mimics a trend that we see globally, as you point out, by Trump increasingly in Europe. Um, there's a, a wave of conservative politicians in Europe uh, who are appropriating the language of labor and also frighteningly a wave of, um, you know, of labor uh, leaders who are increasingly aligning with conservative policies. And I think migration is the nexus of a lot of that um, and border controls, which is one of the reasons I argue in, in border and rule that we really need to be thinking uh, so deeply about the ways in which borders are increasingly becoming the pillar uh, through which uh, racial capitalism and racial citizenship is expanding um, and the ways in which new forms of violence are, are being enacted. Yeah, those are, I think, fairly important points. Uh, and in the book, you point out, and I think again, this is very important for those of us on the left, uh, you point out that, in your words, many leftists also call for nationalist protections in the face of transnational capital. And there are some real similarities that people often don't want to think about uh, between those kinds of calls from people on the left and what people like Aaron O'Toole are, are doing. So uh, what is the better alternative then to left nationalism as a response to the, the real problems that uh, people are facing? Yeah, I think, you know, the left response um, is, you know, should not, should fully reject um, other left responses that call for more border enforcement, that calls for, you know, stricter, stricter measures against quote unquote foreign workers. Like that is just a response that we should reject. Um, and I think, you know, following the lead of migrant worker organizers, um, like Justice for Migrant Workers, like Migrant Rights Network, uh, like the decades of organizing, um, in Canada by migrant workers and advocacy organizations, we really should be calling for, uh, you know, status for all and labor protections for all, right? That uh, everyone who arrives to work in Canada should be given immigration status upon landing. Um, and then also, you know, the right to unionization um, and all the other kind of benefits that flow from that, from that legal structure. And that's incredibly important because I think it's a pivot um, and really turns on its head the idea that, that migrant workers are the ones who are lowering the wage floor, right? Like work, workers do not lower the wage floor, bosses and the state do. Um, and so it's really important to refuse that kind of divide and rule where migrant workers are scapegoated uh, for state sanctioned programs of indentureship. 
And I think internationally, it means that we see insourcing and outsourcing as flip sides of the same coin, right? That in order to effectively fight uh, capitalism or, you know, in this contemporary kind of late stage, what we think of or know of as, as capitalist globalization, um, that we really see that as the arc of capitalism, right? Globalized capital requires immobilized labor. So we can't rely on the border because the border actually further immobilizes labor. So we need, even though it may seem contradictory, the fight against, against the free flows of capital is actually an anti-capitalist fight with freedom for all workers. And where we fight um, you know, capitalism by also fighting imperialism, right? Such that the division between the global north and the global south collapses, right? The, the, kind, the ability for capital to extract and exploit and cheapen labor um, in parts of the global south and export processing zones um, against um, you know, migrant workers, against predominantly racialized uh, women of color is deeply connected to histories of imperialism, to empire, to enslavement, to indentureship. And so we have to dismantle that, that global system of apartheid um, that even allows for that differentiation to exist and that causes these kinds of segmentations in the working class across race, gender, ability, sexuality, citizenship, and more. We see openly racist, hard right-wing forces like Maxime Bernier's People's Party and genuinely fascist and other far-right groups in Canada confidently opposing official multiculturalism. And then faced with that kind of attack from the right, I think it's pretty common for people to respond by simply uncritically defending official multiculturalism. So from your perspective, could you explain why you think that kind of response is wrong and sketch out what you think a better approach is when it comes to the politics around official multiculturalism? Yeah, I think um, uh, that, you know, absolutely that is kind of a predicament for the left, if you will, right? Which is that in the face of overt racism by the right, more kind of mainstream responses um, are these liberal responses that default to multiculturalism, state benevolence, um, perhaps best encapsulated by the, the refrain of, of Trudeau around welcome refugees in the face of overt racist exclusions, right? Um, where there's overt white supremacist rhetoric against refugees that's um, extremely xenophobic. Then we get this kind of counter that's praised worldwide. Um, but the, the problem with that is, you know, it's, it's multifold. Um, one is that it really uh, entrenches the state as a kind of benevolent actor. Um, it reinforces, you know, multiculturalism is effectively a form of charity. Um, where the state continues to grant people permission and really sets the terms of what multiculturalism looks like, right? Um, and in the case of Refugees Welcome, still sets the terms of uh, welcoming refugees, where refugees are positioned as guests, as outsiders to be welcomed by the state, uh, you know, where hospitality is effectively a form of generosity, um, which is different, right? The, the discourse of um, generosity and hospitality is not what um, movements like known as legal are, are about. These are, you know, these are movements that are struggling for justice, that are anti-capitalist, anti-colonial, um, and that reject generosity and hospitality as the kind of foundational ethics um, to inform that work. And so I think that's important. Um, I think, you know, the challenges to multiculturalism have also been well articulated by Indigenous scholars and organizers and, and Black organizers and scholars uh, like 
Glenn Coulthard, um, like Audra Simpson, uh, Ronaldo Walcott, Robin Maynard, Dion Brand, and many others um, who've challenged state multiculturalism as uh, you know, a way of erasing, especially foundational anti-Indigenous and anti-Black state violence, right? By kind of reducing it to a, a celebratory um, kind of uh, refrain around, we're all from different cultures. And even for reducing race to the plane of culture, right? To, to divorce conversations around systemic violence to ethnic difference or cultural difference. Um, so, you know, that's, that's another concern with uh, official state multiculturalism discourse. Um, you know, a, a third one is that it is a way to manage difference. It really collapses and homogenizes communities in ways uh, that are disturbing, right? Where the state decides what kind of box you check off in a really rudimentary way on a census or in a survey um, that, again, really collapses, uh, you know, identity and structures uh, to, to, these, to these homogenous identities um, that collapses, for example, uh, class, caste, and, and other social markers that are deeply important. Um, and, you know, one of the examples that I give in, a, in the book is the weird thing about multiculturalism is that it positions, uh, in, for example, the South Asian context, uh, you know, a, a person from Kashmir who's occupied by India in the same category as uh, uh, an upper caste Hindu from India, right? Like that, that makes no sense in terms of the social violences and political violences that are embedded in those relations um, or between caste oppressed and caste privileged people uh, in the South Asian context. And so there's, there's a lot um, that's troubling about the state discourses of multiculturalism that are meant to evade, uh, again, a systemic thinking um, and analysis of how power operates. It's a way for the state to position itself um, as non-racist, not as anti-racist, but as non-racist it's a way for most settler Canadians to think about multiculturalism just in the framework of celebratory festivals or cuisine um, in these kind of superficial markers of difference um, and to not contend with the ways in which systemic racism continues to permeate in every aspect of our lives, right? In, and in every indicator of social life in this country. And so I think those are, you know, just, just some of the ways in which um, state multiculturalism really needs to be problematized and not be seen as the counter um, to overt right-wing white supremacy. Thanks very much for your time. And I'd certainly encourage listeners who want to learn more about this to pick up a copy of Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism, which has been published just this year by Fernwood in Canada and Haymarket in the US. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, David. The second part of this episode is a conversation recorded with two other members of the editorial board of the new socialist publication in which I'm involved, Midnight Sun. I'm one of the uh, members of the editorial board of a new publication called Midnight Sun, and so I thought it would be useful to introduce the project to listeners to Victor's Children and, and talk about it a bit. So I'm very happy to be joined by two fellow uh, editors here. Uh, maybe you can introduce yourselves. So I'm Lena Nasser Al-Hajali um, and I'm on the editorial committee for Midnight Sun magazine. 
And I'm Daniel Sarah Karasik, and I'm also on the editorial committee uh, board or collective or whatever we're calling ourselves. Uh, and I'm also serving as the managing editor of Midnight Sun magazine, which is this new project uh, that David, as David was saying, and there are eight of us on the on the board. And so it's just recently launched in, in May of 2021. Uh, and I guess the question some people might have is why another radical left publication in Canada? Because of course, if you look at our, our number uh, on the out there, um, if you think about the ones that are not produced by a socialist group, uh, we have Briar Patch, the, the last one still publishing really on a regular basis in uh, print and online. Upping the ante is an annual. Uh, and then in terms of online only publications, there's Canadian Dimension, Passage, and the Media Co-op, a different kind of a site recently relaunched. And then in addition, there are a number of publications online, sometimes also in print from uh, the various, very small socialist groups. The one that stands out probably the most among those is, is Spring. Uh, so then the question is, why did we decide that another publication was a worthwhile project? Yeah, I mean, I think I can I can speak to that as somebody who is sort of close to who I you know proposed proposed to do this. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think the ones you the ones you name are are good. That's a good survey of the of the the landscape, I think. And there, you know, there's some pardon me, some others like this magazine. I think could be kind of mentioned in the same in the same connection. Um, uh, like as in this, like the magazine called this, not as in like this magazine, Midnight Sun. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the main thing I would say is that I I personally see this project, uh, see Midnight Sun as complementary um, in that kind of existing context. I think that, um, and many of the magazines you named are sort of inspirations for parts of this project to my mind. I mean, I think like, I you know, Briar Patch is a, a real sort of, exemplar for me. I mean, I published in Briarpatch a bunch and uh, and take a lot of inspiration from the sort of national, um, I mean, as like Saima Desai, who's the editor there, I put it in one of her editor editor's notes recently that the magazine has at its best the potential to sort of stitch together movements from across the country and put put different struggles in, in sort of in communication with each other and make them aware of each other uh, in a way that I think is really useful. And so I like that that quality of Briar Patch and the sort of editorial standard of Briar Patch, I think is like really um, sort of you know a model for me in many ways. And then the sort of like theoretical depth uh, and focus of something like Upping the Ante was also um, for me like a kind of a uh, point of inspiration. I think Upping the Ante is probably the closest publication of the publications that exist. I think in Canada, I think it's probably the closest in some ways in terms of style and intention uh to um what we are up to um and you know spring has like a great capacity to publish like you know kind of like up to the minute like very frequent sort of like interventions into what's happening on the ground they're sort of like you know and i mean among other things they're also a source of analysis uh and you know context of various sorts but they're they're also they have the capacity to function in a kind of news uh very accessible sort of news oriented uh way that I admire. And so I think I was just like, of all those great pieces, I don't really, I didn't really feel like there was anywhere that if you had an essay, say, like thinking from a writer's perspective, if you had an essay um, on, um, that wanted to do kind of a deep dive um, into sort of the like theoretical, analytical, strategic um, layers of um, socialist struggle or liberatory struggle of different sorts, however you just, however, however described in Canada, um, that 
perhaps had, you know, like a some sort of literary quality that was very sort of attentive to style and attentive to language. Um, I could think of a handful of magazines in the United States uh, or in uh, to a lesser extent in the, in the UK that you could sort of approach with that text, but I couldn't really think of that many you could approach in Canada. You know, like it's not quite what Briarpatch publishes, like the sort of thing that, for example, um, N plus one magazine in the US or the New Inquiry um, or the New Spectre Journal, I think has the capacity to publish um, and does publish this sort of thing. Um, and there are a handful of other examples. I think um, Salvage in the UK, like the kind of um, both sort of theoretical and literary intensity and uh, um, consistency of the work that those magazines tend to feature. I couldn't quite think of like the equivalent in Canada. And again, I think upping the ante comes pretty close in many respects, but publishes quite infrequently as far as I can tell, or at least it's not on my radar, which maybe is just like a matter of like, I'm not seeing on my social media, you know, these sort of like banal explanations like that. But I think the idea of having a, a space where you could bring that kind of work um, that was really maybe like quite single-mindedly, if not entirely single-mindedly oriented to this sort of question, like what is to be done, you know, this sort of like classic um, strategic, not in a sort of like highly theoretical or sort of highly abstract way, but, but you know, simply in terms of like, what should we do, um, at, you know, collectively to meet the challenges at hand? Um, and so not just like a description of the problems, but also, you know, some, you know, qualified, humble forms of prescription, perhaps. Um, yeah, so th those were some of the sort of like specifics, I think, and, and also like marrying or, you know, wedding a, a literary sensibility that could also include like literally publishing um, poetry and sort of literary writing in the same breath as um, strategic analytic uh, prose, I think was a, a priority for me as somebody who sort of whose own literary practice or writing practice that crosses those disciplinary lines. So I, I, that's a bit of a rambly uh, <laughs> approach to that question. I mean, Lena, do you have do you have a sense as like I mean that was very that was me like you know that's me in like grant proposal mode or whatever like pitching this project initially. Do you have a sense of how it's like distinct distinguishing itself like in practice maybe? Right. Um, I mean, um, as Daniel Sarah said, I think it's, you know, all of the uh, publications that you've pointed to are really great and offer us really great insight and stories um, on the Canadian left. But I think in general or ultimately the purpose of writing itself is to kind of help clarify one's position and to make uh, the sort of criticisms that we're trying to tie together around capitalism or racism, settler colonialism, all of these things to make it touch down into people's everyday lives. And so because we recognize that this kind of work is urgent and important, um, even though there is uh, various publications out there that are doing similar things, I think that it's still very much so missing from the broader conversation um, within the Canadian context and on the left in general. And so if we can offer more of that work and more of that clarification, then I think that we will have, you know, sort of done our jobs. Yeah, and I would just add that certainly the way when Daniel Sarah first and I were first talking about some of this stuff, the, um, the focus on the strategic really struck me as important in terms of what, you know, there's not enough good thinking about strategy out there that's um, coming from a revolutionary socialist perspective. So I think that was exciting to me. Uh, and uh, the fact that the publication would be open to running 
articles of a kind you wouldn't necessarily find together in any of these other publications. I think that could be uh, also really, really promising. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the initial articles that have been published. Um, at It's the 15th of May right now when we're doing this. By the time this is being heard, there'll be more, uh, more articles. But uh, any thoughts on what the initial articles signal about the kinds of writing that Midnight Sun wants to offer readers? Well, I mean, I think maybe I can I can offer a kind of segue, uh, David, from what you were just saying about like, you know, the, the strategic focus of the magazine. I think that um, one thing that is beginning to be clear, maybe from the articles we, we've published so far, we, we have three, we only have, th we have only three pieces uh, live besides the um, editorial statements um, so far, but we have a bunch of others in the in the works. Um, is that there is a, you know, we're, we're placing a priority and it was sort of always my priority in proposing the project to um, derive strategy from organizers' experiences, um, as well as sort of broader analyses of the situation we find ourselves in. So, you know, there's always, I think there has always been an intention with this project to kind of try to go to you know, um, organic intellectuals or however you want to sort of categorize the class that, you know, sort of to go to people who are sort of embedded in struggle in whatever way, um, those who also, in, you know, have some some degree of interest in sort of writing about um, that work um, and to sort of like try to, um, you know, derive or sort of like, um, like gather uh, wisdom from those experiences um, and there's a, there's a great line, another magazine that's a, certainly a touchstone for me in this work is Viewpoint Magazine, uh, which is sort of international, but I think mostly based in, it, most of its editors are based in the States, I think. And um, there's a great uh, article in Viewpoint Magazine that I was reading a while back that talks about, um, it, it talks about the party, actually. I think it's an article called Party as Articulator, I think. I, I love mm -hmm. this piece. And it's, it's, it talks about the party as having the capacity, and this is going to be a bad paraphrase, uh, of like having the capacity to um, take, um, to sort of like take in sort of information or impulses from the class or from sort of struggle, from the working class, from struggle to synthesize and analyze and um, discuss, you know, uh, those ideas and shape them in some way and sort of like, you know, and articulate them. And then there's this great line in the piece and then submit them back to the class for verification and revision and renewal. And so I think that that kind of process is really exciting to me. And the, the idea that like we can, you know, whether our, whether the ideas in the, in the magazine are coming from sort of organizers who are like, you know, embedded in struggle, like in, in sort of, you know, like right now, or it's from, from people who are maybe like one step removed in whatever way, the idea that we can then sort of like submit those ideas to ver for verification to, um, you know, movements and, and, you know, see, and see how they're received and see, you know, any sort of incorporate or, um, you know, sort of like move with feedback of whatever sort, um, and and be sort of useful, uh, you know, or, or as, as useful as possible to to movements. For example, um, we, one of our initial art articles is by Selena Hoffman, who's a, a hairstylist um, in Toronto and who has always had like um, radical impulses and has always been like the deeply curious as, as long as I've known her about um, organizing and sort of radical politics was sort of involved in student government and then got really burnt out I, I think from student government spaces and was just like what you know I'm, I'm going to learn a trade and and like learn to trade but then sort of preserved I think a lot of her um, you know sort of a lot of her 
thinking from her student government sort of days, you know, when she kind of entered the uh, hairstyling as a trade. So the article is about like, how do we, like, how do we organize hairstyles? How do we organize workers who are told that they're entrepreneurs, um, you know, who are these like atomized sort of like, you know, hyper-responsibilized, individualized, like workers and, and sort of build solidarity between them. And then the other two articles, one is um, called Building Blocks by Mike Goldhawk, Goldhawk, I'm not sure if it's Gold or Gould, um, spelled Gould, uh, who is um, a Korean Métis writer who is uh, based in the city now called Vancouver. Um, and it's a, a really great piece on um, the blockade as a tactic and the blockade, the ways that it's sort of rooted in um, in relationships and, and relations of care and the ways that that sort of what seems like, you know, the sort of peak of or one of the sort of peaks of like militancy and confrontation is actually sort of really deeply rooted in um, uh, in many in many ways, like quite sort of um, invisibilized, feminized sort of work of um, social reproduction and care um, to build the trust that makes possible the solidarities that, that then are activated um, in the blockade. And then the other piece we launched with um, simultaneously with with Mike's uh, by Jody Chan, they are a, um, a disability justice organizer and psychotherapist in training, I believe, and um, poet, amazing poet. They, their book, uh, their I think debut full collection, um, just was nominated for the. I think it was the Trillium Book Award. No, it wasn't the Toronto Book Award. It was the Trillium Book Award, uh, just like this past week. Um, so highly recommend checking out their poetry as well, but they read a, a piece called Madness is a Strategy, um, which is a, a work of literary nonfiction or a sort of literary essay on um, the ways that um, madness uh, of different sorts, you know, madness sort of variously um, experienced and defined can sort of open up possibilities for opposition, can sort of like create, the, create a basis for um, dissenting um, from norms and normative um, expectations in ways that can seem, uh, you know, like there, there are so many, the, the incentives to sort of adhere to those norms are so intense that to dissent from them can seem, you know, on its face, like a kind of madness. And so having, and so actually experiencing madness of whatever kind, um, you know, can be um, bound up in that, you know, in that uh, process of dissent, you know, sort of whichever whichever leads whether it's the whether it's the sort of descent that leads or the sort of like psychological you know sort of condition of badness or sort of experiential condition that leads that there's a unity there that's interesting and worth uh, worth thinking about and um yeah it's a beautiful um lovely piece of of writing i think um one thought that just came to my mind as i was listening to you talk about it um about those articles daniel sarah is that i think i mean certainly you care deeply about about editing um and i think one thing that does unite all those of us you know in, in the project is a commitment that uh to the idea that uh writers deserve to have their ideas um expressed in the in the best way possible and that we don't want to just be publishing barely edited stuff that gets submitted right that articles uh, ideas deserve to have the the to be developed, I guess, as as to the, to the best ability of the of the writer, and so the role of the um, the publication when we deal with submissions is to try to help ideas to blossom, um, so that we do want to have standards, you know, when it comes to uh, the articles that we put out into the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, 
for me, like that's it's definitely it's definitely true that this sort of like attention to editorial detail is uh, really central to my um, in, you know investments in in the, the project uh, and in general. And I think though, I think for me it's less. I mean, it's not necessarily a sort of it's not the curatorial function, uh, like the sort of curatorial editorial function that interests me so much as I think that I just, I, I just sort of, I, you know, I'm interested in writing and writers. And I, I think that like a piece, if if we think that a piece like, you know, d- should be um, amplified, you know, broad sort of platform amplified, then I think it just deserves like time and like good conversations around it. And I, I feel like that, you know, I don't, I don't have any um, desire to sort of like, you know, insist dogmatically on a given way uh, you know a piece of writing needs to look of of course I I think I just like um I just think that there can be a rush to get things into into you know print or online in some cases and you know what I've experienced as a writer especially when you're talking about online stuff where you can in principle move so fast right like there's no there aren't the sort of like material or structural sort of you know, um, speed checks that you would get with print publishing, uh, potentially, you know, so you can like get something online, like, you know, within whatever, 24 hours or a week or whatever the case is. And I just think you can lose, um, the opportunity to just like really sort of like talk through like what, what you're exploring and like, um, clarify the expression of ideas and maybe the ideas themselves. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that when we want to kind of answer another answer to your initial question, David, about what is, potentially different about this project is I think that um, at least, at least from my perspective, and I think that this, this seems to be a fairly, you know, sort of share, broadly shared one among, among the editors uh, we're, you know, we're working, we're working with and we are, um, that we want to sort of take the time to, you know, do, do right by the authors we publish and not kind of, you know, move so fast that we're not able to offer, um, you know, time and attention and care to each, each author and each piece that we publish. It's like, we can't, at this point pay a ton of money but what we can do is like offer a lot of time and time and attention and care uh potentially if we if we choose to so um yeah i think that's that's part of how i'm thinking about things at the moment what about what about you lena so i think for sort of the way david framed the question about what it signals to readers what these initial pieces signal to readers um one of the things i really love about our first three pieces is just that it sort of showcases really great writing by people who are, I guess, outside of both traditional academia and some of them could also be considered outside of the traditional labor movement. Um, And I don't think that necessarily that was by design. It's just how it unfolded. Um, But it does signal to readers the the sort of um, importance or possibility of learning from a wider range of thinkers. Um, And Again, that's not because we reject traditional, you know, academia. My own background is in uh, traditional academic spaces, and I have, um, you know, also been inside the, you know, traditional labor movement as well. And so those are my own um, sort of points of departure. But I think that in acknowledging a sort of wider terrain for speaking about and analyzing struggle, and Daniel Sarah did mention this earlier as well, we just, there's, there's just so much to learn if we are open to learning from others, right? And so the the fact that these are the three pieces that have started us off, I think is um, really great for us. And it, it does signal that, you know, this conversation that we're going to be engaging in is going to be wider um, and is going to include a lot more voices than, you know, might typically appear um, in this kind of publication. And I think 
maybe sometimes we have a bit of a, you know, there's there's the there's the conception already of the left and its writing of being overly academic, and it's a it's a misplaced concern, but it's still something you hear again and again that you know it's overly intellectual or, or something along those lines, uh, you know, very divorced from reality and all this kind of thing. But um, I think rather than you know, sort of speaking to that, we're, we're just turning our attention immediately kind of to those who can provide us with really great analyses um, of struggle as they experience it. And so, um, you know, that's the best sort of response to that kind of um, claim anyways, right, about about what the sort of limitations of writing on the left can be. And I mean, Daniel Sarah mentioned um, organic intellectuals. And I think I think it's really important. It might be harder, you know, to do than it is just to say, but we're so far doing really great. And for me, that's a really important part of uh, the work that we're doing at, at Midnight Sun. And yeah. this also brings to mind for me something that's in the um, introductory statement that we put out, if I remember right, about uh, the importance of deep bringing deep curiosity to bear. Um, and I think this this really matters. And some people might respond to that kind of thing by saying, well, that's really just an academic concern. But I think it's actually an extremely important political concern because we actually want to win. Right? We actually want struggles to move forward, to advance. And we therefore need to actually be deeply curious about the conditions that we're fighting in and about what is effective and what isn't effective in those conditions. Right. I mean, at, at, at the end of the day, it's it's kind of a pragmatic Thing that should drive us to be intensely curious and and questioning um, and about the situation we're in and about received dogmas on the left as well. Um, well, yeah, I mean, and I think we, I would, we do try to bring that spirit to the publication. I would add. I mean, yeah, I, I agree completely um, with with both what uh, Lena was just saying and what you're saying, David. And I, I think the um, you know the the unwillingness to sort of, or the, the sort of resistance to, um, <laughs> to sort of debating ideas or thinking, maybe not debating ideas, but, you know, sort of like considering different sort of strategic possibilities. Um, you know, I think that it's, I, it can either be an admission of defeat in advance where there's this sort of, you know, like if, if we are to win, right, then there are almost, you know, sort of by default, there are, there are different, roads we might take. You know, there are different possibilities, there are different tactics as well as strategies. Um, and so to sort of, you know, abstain from that sort of conversation or or profess disinterest in the conversation um, is already kind of to say that, you know, so it's either to say that like, well, you know, this, it's not worth having because we, you know, we don't have the capacity to actually choose. We don't have the capacity to act. We're at the mercy of historical forces. You know, we just need to kind of respond, which seems like kind of a kind of capitulation. Or, it's like a will to dominate, right? It's, it's sort of a will to say like, our way is the right way, our way is the best. It's very obvious, you know, how dare you sort of like raise questions about it? How dare you, you know, sort of sow doubt and, and you know, dis, disunify or fracture the class or the sort of, you know, advanced forces of it or whatever. And so I think we just need to reject both of those um, possibilities. I think we need to reject the sort of like Im implicit quiet domination of like our way is the best and you mustn't discuss it. And we must reject the, the sort of defeatism implied in, um, you know, there's nothing worth discussing because, you know, we can't do anything anyway. So, I mean, I think that there, uh, you know, I think from early conversations about this project, just as an idea, which like, uh, to be fair, we're not that long ago. I mean, this, this kind of moved from an idea to a, an actuality in the space of about 
five, six months at the most. Like, I mean, it moved to launch in the space of six months, but like we went from like an idea to actually building it in about uh, two to three months. So fast um, by my estimation. Um, And I think that the, from the, from the first word I wrote about this project, I was like, this is going to get called academic. It's going to get called, you know, like there's no way to do a, you know, an in-depth attention to ideas and analysis, not only on the left. I mean, I think this is even worse in liberal spaces. Uh, You know, there's no way to do that and not get criticized as academic and out of touch by some, uh, some people, Um, because it is, it's just, it's the form of criticism that presents itself if you disagree with what the project is doing. So, um, and also maybe it runs the risk of being those things of deserving that criticism. You know, I mean, we have to also be aware, you know, that we're not, be careful not to just intervene in debates that are happening in the academy and not elsewhere. But that to me is the measure. I mean, it's like, you know, we, we need to be intervening in conversations that are happening in movements uh, and in the streets and not just happening um, within the academy. And there are certain implications for the language we use uh, you know, and the sort of the ways we approach that project, but they're not reductive implications. I think they're not, you know, the implication is that we have to sort of use like, um, you know, um, a certain form of language, uh, you know, because we're, we're speaking like not to the academy, but to the, to movements and to the streets, because I think, you know, there are like all kinds of languages and all kinds of, all kinds of language and all kinds of experience in, in movements and in the streets. And we need to be sort of specific about the ways we're intervening in, in those conversations. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that like we, we are doing a thing that will get called academic and we need to be, you know, sort of just conscious and intentional about not being academic in our sort of substantive, uh, um, you know, uh, intentions and work. Yeah. I think it's also, I think it's also important, um, sort of to highlight that, you know, some of the, some of these positions that we've elaborated, let's say in our um, statement um, on the on the website are not, I, I wanna just get away also from the idea that we're, we're only doing this because it's new, right? Or because, you know, in the present, we need to address questions around settler colonialism or racial politics or racial capitalism, whatever it is that we we are doing these things because that's sort of where the discussion is today but it rather i i'm i want people or to or wanted to be interpreted as you know this is we're paying attention to the historical reality that many forms of working class organizing and resistance have taken place in these particular ways but it just has not been analyzed in these ways and so when we are putting forward these ideas and when we're letting you know these angles sort of, you know, come to the fore of the discussion and these particular writers, the ones that we are, uh, you know, holding up at this moment. Um, it's not because that this is some sort of new direction that we need to go in, but because we, you know, this is a feature of the historical struggles that, and we're simply just taking that seriously. We're taking that element of it seriously. And so that's why these stories come out to, you know, to be the ones that we are choosing or the ones that we are forefronting in this magazine. Yeah, and I think something something else that this this brings up is the way that uh, unfortunately, you know, on the one hand, you have fewer, I think fewer spaces 
for serious discussion of ideas outside universities than used to exist. And also you have more people going to university simply because of the demands of the job market, right? And these things together um, shape how people engage with ideas. So it's especially important, I think, that we're doing, and we're certainly not the only people doing this, but the publication is taking ideas seriously in a political way, you know, completely independent of academic institutions and, and publications. Um, and I hope that it's also going to be a way that we can encourage people to engage in political writing, right? Because a lot of people don't think that they're they're very busy being activists or organizers, but um, they may not be encouraged or supported to, to actually write about, reflect on their experiences and, and try to generalize um, from them, ref, uh, in, engage in that kind of analysis. And the publication should be a space for that. Um, although my, my comment here maybe just bridges to the next question that I wanted to bring up, which was about what we hope the publication can be. Um, anything? things come to mind in terms of your what you really are hoping for where, where we are dreaming this is going to go what it can do i mean i find so it's interesting i mean you know like so much credit to uh to saima at Briarpatch for um her graciousness and like support of this project because i i you know part of my like uh, solicitation or curatorial sort of like approach in, in launching this thing has been to kind of like poach a bunch of like briar you know briar patch associated authors i mean you know she's like done such a great job of finding or you know being found by um fantastic uh anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist anti-oppressive writers from uh, around the country and beyond so um I think that part of what I hope for this project um, is that it might be able to, in its own way, which is different, I, I think, subtly, or depending, you know, how you read it, um, uh, do sort of what Briarpatch has done and create um, relationships and solidarities and, or maybe not create, but sort of like that, you know, sort of consolidate or sort of like deepen relationships and conversations with people um, in different movements um, potentially in different parts of the country and the world. I mean, I think that even though we're, we're sort of, you know, we're based in Canada, I think um, we do share an internationalist perspective on the board. And um, we have from the start been interested in um, soliciting writing from others, you know, those in, embedded in other struggles uh, in other countries, uh, you know, behind, um, you know, fake, fake, very, re very really impactful borders. Um, and yeah, I mean, so I think, like actually building links that then can be activated in other ways, you know, building links um, sort of, I mean, you know, like in a way that is not inconsistent with some of what Mike Gultock describes in his piece, you know, that like building sort of the links of like relationship and mutual understanding and mutual excitement, you know, like being excited about each other's sort of ideas and, and literary expression and so on. I mean, like those to me are just kind of like rudimentary, like building blocks again, sorry to, you know, Go go to Mike's uh, to use Mike's terms. I mean, or not sorry. I mean, I'm happy to use Mike's terms. Uh, um, you know, those are like building blocks of relationships and of connections. That again, I think there's no predicting how how those kinds of solidarities might be activated in struggle in you know two, five, ten, ten years. Um, so there's that, and then I think that I mean, it would be great. Um, it would be great if uh, we could encourage the production of the kinds of writing that we're seeking that we can sort of make it make it more possible you know to to do that kind of writing both in, in terms of like having a, a a place that is a home for it that can publish it and also pay for it you know maybe in 
um, increasingly sort of like appropriately sort of remunerative ways uh, and like then share it and create more, create more of an audience for it uh, in Canada and beyond um, in whatever small way. And um, yeah, I just become like a sort of like a go-to place for, for this particular kind of writing on the left, you know, particularly in Canada, but not exclusively and, um, and be in conversation with other writing of that sort happening elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, Daniel Sarah already said it, but, you know, just drawing out these connections um, across struggle, um, you know, both within Canada and internationally, like Daniel Sarah said, is is the ultimate hope, I think. Um, and to and the recognition that they're all implicated in one another is, for me, at least also going back to that question of power and building power. And so if we want those things, we need to uh, sort of draw out or lay bare those connections. And also, I think um, if maybe make them concrete, make them, when we say like touch down in people's lives, I think that is to try to say, you know, make these uh, connections and these struggles concrete for people in the way that they, um, you know, experience they, their day-to-day -day reality. And, um, you know, when I was thinking about this question, uh, David, when you sent it to us, I thought about how I actually had like a sort of moment recently where I was researching something else. I was looking for something else. Um, it was very casually, it was for something, you know, sort of social, it wasn't a sort of, you know, research project or anything, but I was looking for certain information and I am, I'm a Sudanese immigrant to Canada. And so, you know, I arrived here as a child. Um, and so, you know, I've always heard stories from my own family about different kind of historical touch points in Sudan. Of course, that's the, you know, the kind of stories that they want to tell me. Um, and my parents always love to tell a particular story about this um, British officer in Sudan who was, you know, killed um, in a, you know, or maybe late 19th century anti-colonial struggle. And so anyways, you know, this story, they love to tell this story and I was looking for some other information. Uh, and so that particular fight was being lost by the British. And so they had to send in reinforcements and they sent in a team to extract this officer from, from Sudan. But because you have to travel up the Nile to get to the capital Khartoum, um, they needed, you know, skilled, I guess, river navigators. And, and the, the team that they put forward was the same team um, that had led a um, sort of, they, were, they led the expedition against Louis Riel and the Red River Rebellion. And so I thought that that was just so fascinating for me because, you know, obviously I hear this story from my parents, you know, and that connection right there would have never really occurred to me or been apparent to me at all. Um, but to think about the relationship between, you know, my parents who love to tell that story of this particular like anti-colonial battle and the connection it has with this place that I'm also occupying in this space that I'm also in and this history I'm also trying to engage with in Canada for me is like, um, I guess what I mean when I say make it concrete, you know, and make those connections concrete and make those, the connection between those struggles uh, lay out the implications for each other rather than seeing them as, you know, I need to also learn about this over here and somebody should also learn about me over here. And, you know, those, those that kind of work and trying to think in those ways is I think really important if we want to build power. And ultimately my hope for what we will do through this magazine 
the stories will highlight, the people will be in conversation with, and hopefully the conversations we'll have after. Uh, as the one member of the editorial board who's not based in Toronto, um, I, I live in Winnipeg, where there's a neighborhood called Wolseley, uh, yep. which is, is, of course, directly relevant to the story that you just told about yep. uh, anti-colonial struggles in um, Africa and in uh, this part of the world where I live, too. Um, I, I would just add to this that I really hope that Midnight Sun is going to be a, a reference point, you know, that people uh, in various parts of the Canadian state who identify with the kind of politics that we outline um, and with are, are really, really concerned and interested in the, the kinds of questions we're going to be dealing with. Um, it'll be a place that they, they begin to identify with and uh, read and, and write for, because, of course, people with politics like ours are currently very fragmented and scattered in this society. And so if we can in some way contribute to just just changing that situation for the better um, in, in some modest ways. And I think it will be a, an accomplishment. Maybe a, a, just a last uh, question then is what people who are listening to this who want to support Midnight Sun can do. Can, can I just add something real quick, just as a sort of like synthesis of, I mean, I, just listening to both of you talk about your 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 hopes as well for the project. It occurs to me that you know, maybe the best reply to um, the you know critique that we are certain to uh, you know receive if we are not already already quietly receiving it that we're sort of you know an academic project or sort of just you know abstract or whatever is that it seems like the overwhelming intention of the project is to build political relationships and I think that that intention is is so important in distinguishing it from um, what people mean when you know they talk we sort of cr criticize like an academic intention which is I feel like the heart of that critique or that sort of criticism is that you know you're not it's it's like not about relationships it's sort of like dealing with ideas sort of in, in abstraction from or you know in separation from people and people's sort of lives and concerns and I think that um, there is something really exciting to me about how we all seem to want to like find the the synthesis or the you know the the links between ideas and people's lives and concerns and sort of you know build relationships in and through these sorts of in and through is such a very it's like a very academic sort of construction but you know like build relationships you know sort of with these ideas um as some sort of you know part of the process um well, sorry, and you, a you, a, just a publication where you know we've got for example the, the mike goldhawk article and someone who comes to the the publication to to read that article um will hopefully in a few weeks also be able to read an article about a really positive experience of uh, workplace organizing um, by postal workers, right? And vice versa, people who come and are excited by that article about uh, postal workers organizing, you know, who might not never have otherwise read um, a piece about uh, pipeline uh, blockades and resistance, you know, would find that. And the people who find both those things important and can see the links between them. Right. We, those, those are people that need to be in relationship with each other. Totally. Yeah, I think I mean, I think it sort of acknowledges the reality that people often with this, you know, with this kind of writing or any kind of writing, people sort of bring their audiences to it. It's like the people who are reading, you know, any of these pieces will be like our kind of like fledgling audiences in magazine, but also like the people who, who those authors are already in relationship with. And so the ability for, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure a um, you know, like Selena's friends, for instance, who may have been reading, um, who may have initially seen, you know, Selena's like Instagram post about 
um, you know, hairstyling, uh, hairstylist organizing with them. Yeah. Like on our, on our homepage also have access to these other, other pieces about other struggles. And as you say, maybe there are some interesting possibilities for uh, connections to be made there. All right. Just uh, go back to the other question then. And that's what, what people who are listening to this conversation who'd like to support Midnight Sun can do. I'm I'm leaving it for you mainly, Daniel, Sarah, because of course I, I, you know, I can speak broadly about what support would look like, but I think there's of course maybe a first more practical way. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, uh, <laughs> look up our Patreon. I mean, I think that maybe, uh, yeah, like so, I mean, we're, we're trying to raise some, we're trying to raise some uh, money to, to keep the project sustainable because we are committed to, um, to paying for work uh, to whatever extent is possible, uh, paying for writing and stuff. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, uh, that in terms of material support, um, we have a, a Patreon that could be any contribution helps. Um, and uh, beyond that, I mean, I think um, just like having a look at like read, reading reading and sharing this stuff where, I'm sorry, these, these answers are so sort of like kind of obvious that, um, you know, reading and sharing the work that we publish and helping it get to the people who need, who need or may want to, to read it, um, who, you know, our reach still is very, uh, modest, right. We just, we just launched a week, week and two days ago. So, I mean, I think just sharing, uh, if you like the work that we, we are publishing so far, sharing it far and wide is really helpful. Um, and, um, and certainly if, you know, if you have a, I mean, if you have a sort of, um, writing practice or political organizing practice, or uh, ideally both, um, that, um, but not necessarily both, uh, that, um, leads you to, that if you, if you feel excited about what we're doing, then please do send us an email and, and suggest a, a piece of writing for the magazine. I mean, we're, we're very flexible about what form that can take and in terms of, you know, genre form length, um, uh, yeah. And we're, we're, you know, our, our contact sort of submissions section says like, we're seeking, good ideas and new comrades. And that's, I think that's very much the spirit of it. And we don't have, we don't have the capacity to publish like a ton of pieces like because we're trying to take a fair bit of time with what we do publish, uh, or at least the time it needs, the time they need the pieces, pieces. but, um, but certainly like, you know, we're actively reading anything um, folks may want to, to share uh, for possible publication in the magazine. Um, yeah. I mean, again, it, it seems like this seems like really sort of like, basics you know suggestions but I don't I don't know maybe maybe you have more more interesting things to say Lita no no it's the same <laughs> of course it's obvious and still you know it's really important um if people are interested in this work to engage with the material more than anything um you know to discuss the articles um with their own friends and loved ones and you know participate in a broader conversation that hopefully includes us and others i think that's you know what we could that's a really good thing to ask for and a really good thing to get out of this. So if people want to support, I think, uh, you know, if they can support materially, of course there is the Patreon and that would be wonderful. And, uh, you know, the other main form of support is just to engage. And of course uh, it's midnightsunmag.ca that you can find this publication. Uh, and I will be blunt. I really hope that listeners to Victor's Children will consider contributing a small amount of money on a monthly basis to support this publication since we're really looking for you know a, a large number of people to give a little 
in order to help make it something that this fledgling project can become sustainable. So thank you, Daniel, Sarah, and Lena for this conversation and look forward to having you back on Victor's Children at some point in the future. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. That's it for episode five of Victor's Children. If you thought this was worth listening to, please let other people know about it um, and also consider sharing it on whatever social industry platform you use. I'd also like to thank uh, two people who have made important contributions to this show. Uh, Posey Leggett did the artwork, which is uh, what you see online. If you are on a podcast app, for example, looking at the uh, at the show. And, and also I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the, who does all the production work. And without his efforts, this podcast would certainly not be possible. 